All right, guys, our next guest is known for his fantastic analysis on both Morning Combat, the Luke Thomas show on SiriusXM, and, of course, his very own live chat on his fantastic YouTube channel. He is kind enough to jump on and chat to us once again to discuss UFC 252, specifically the rubber match between Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier. Luke Thomas himself, welcome back to Submission Radio. How are you, man? Good, boys. How are you? We're excited to have you on the show, Luke, and that is because there is a big heavyweight fight going down this weekend between Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier. Now, I want to get your excitement meter for this fight. And also, you know, people are talking about that this fight is for the right to call themselves the greatest heavyweight in UFC history. I wonder if you agree and how important do you think this fight is for the history of the division? Uh, okay, so how excited am I? Pretty excited. Uh, the fights have been good recently, but I'm sure you boys have felt there's not been exactly a ton of buzz and traffic for them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's nice to get a pay-per-view back because that's obviously better for business. Mm-hmm. So, and just on a basic level, obviously I'm excited. Also, it's nice to have a... Um, the fight does not feel that big, but I don't say that in a pejorative way. I say it like I'm almost kind of relieved that there's not some kind of exhausting during the pandemic ugly feud we'd have to be pouring over so that feels pretty good um and to candidly i'm excited for the main event and i recognize that the stakes are bigger than any other fight on the card if you're asking about a personal level of excitement the co-main event has got me a little bit more interested between sean o'malley and chito vera which i'm sure we'll get to but in the uh the main event um I'm sorry, I don't really buy this idea that this is for like the greatest of all time at heavyweight. I don't really think that that's true or at a bare minimum, the winner of this bout might be able to make a claim to it, but it's not an uncontested claim. Now, if you want to say best heavyweight of all time, that's probably on the line, but even then it's a little hard for me to make that claim, which is to say if Stipe wins, well, okay, he wins it walking away, right? That's fine. Uh, But if Cormier wins... I mean, you, you can probably give it to him, too. But, I mean, here's the problem with the argument. It's not that I'm super against the idea of Cormier being considered the all-time best heavyweight if he wins uh, on a personal level. Like, do I think he probably is on some in terms of talent? Yes. But there's a difference between doing what Conor McGregor did in a division and what Jose Aldo did. You know, Jose <laughs> Aldo spent a long time there putting a body of work together for the the wins at 145 pounds make no mistake man conor mcgregor's wins including one over jose aldo as we all know is super impressive if anything his resume has aged really well with poirier on it and holloway on it and everything else i mean it's great what he did but it's like was he a better featherweight i mean when him and jose met he was a better featherweight but in the totality of the experience who was a a better featherweight and who was a better featherweight champion the answer there is pretty easily jose aldo given um, uh, yes, he may have lost to Connor, but the body of work is much bigger. So it's like the argument for DC is, well, you know, who, who does he have on his resume at heavyweight? That's really good. Barnett, uh, uh, I guess Bigfoot Silva would count because he was coming off that Overeem win in the strike force heavyweight grand prix. So I'll give him that one. Um, obviously, uh, Lewis is pretty good or something like that. But, you know, we look at his heavyweight resume it's not even as good as Fedor's, like by a long shot. So, for me, it, the guy who beats the other guy, and the other guy was supposed to be the best UFC heavyweight of all time. Well, I guess if you beat him twice, even if you didn't have a long campaign, that kind of makes you that guy, I guess. Um, 
I just think the clearest case would be Stipe's because he has done nothing but heavyweight, and then he would have the two wins. After that, I'm sorry, I feel like it is very, very debatable. It's interesting as well because apart from what's on the line for this fight, also the state of the division is going to be in an interesting sort of position depending on who wins, right? Because you got Daniel Cormier, if he wins and then he retires and sort of gives up the title, then it kind of, well, Stipe just got beat and then it kind of leaves the division wide open. Whereas if Stipe wins, then you've got a, a guy who's the champion, who's quite proven and everybody knows is one of the baddest guys in the division. I'm just wondering, what do you think is the best case for the division come this weekend? Um, I think it's not a. It's not that I don't. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't really care who wins, but it's not like I'm like, oh, I don't want to see Daniel win. That's not what I'm saying. But it just goes. You have to acknowledge it. If he wins, it causes problems. I mean, that's just the way that it goes, right? It's not. It's not anything about Daniel. It's just about if you have a guy and he wins the belt and that's his last fight in that weight class, or in this particular case probably his career then he has to gift the the belt right back to the division and then they have to fight for it you just don't get this easy transference of star power of continuity all the things that are generally what you want when you're manicuring a division and trying to build up the next person who ends up holding that belt so that creates some problems not the end of the world not saying that i'm just saying it's not the ideal outcome in terms of those considerations so let's sort of let's game this out a little bit if DC wins, what are the two likeliest possibilities? One, he retires, as he says he's going to. I think that is probably the likeliest. Or two, they throw big money at him for a third Jones fight, this time at heavyweight. I doubt that that happens, but I think it's something you should at least consider. I don't think he sticks around for Nganu. I don't think he sticks around for, you know, you name Gustafson again or something like <laughs> that. I, I just don't think that's not what he, he's going to do. So let's talk about Stipe. If Stipe wins, what happens? One is... He could also retire, although I think that's less likely than Cormier's. Two, they could do Francis again. Three, they could try to do Stipe Jones and get him off the couch. Mm-hmm. Uh, or four, what is possible is, um, I guess you could go maybe somewhere down the line. No, I think maybe Blades, if Blades beats Lewis. But I tend to think they'll do the Francis fight again. And so if DC wins and then drops it, which is, I guess, the third of the uh, sort of the first one that I indicated, but I didn't really go into what, what that would mean. Then I don't know how you put Stipe back into that fight, to be quite honest with you. I think you would probably do Francis and then maybe try to get Jones up there again. Jones is a big player here no matter what, or at least in theory he is. Or you could do Francis versus the winner of Blades versus Lewis or Francis versus the winner of Lewis versus the winner of Rosenstruck versus JDS. It's a lot of options. It's really murky. I just feel like you have to consider all the possibilities, and all of them have at least one scenario where John Jones is relevant. It's interesting. Do you do you think that the UFC has kind of changed their tone when it comes to Jones and Ngannou and Jones at heavyweight? Because we saw that the last time around, it was pretty disastrous. The UFC didn't seem too keen for whatever reason. Jones was pretty pissed off publicly, and um, everything's been on ice ever since. I don't know what to make of all of that. I mean, the, we know historically the UFC doesn't like to be leveraged. Okay, nothing new there, right? That all is pretty basic. But why would they be so hostile to the idea? And the other part about it was it was so funny. It was like, oh, he wants Deontay Wilder money. And we've, I know we've been over this. It's mm-hmm. like, <laughs> how do you make a claim like that? You know, it's <laughs> like, uh, how, do I, how, do I, how do I make an example of this? It's like, um, it's sort of like, what's a sport that ev- all of us would know beyond just, you know, combat sports? I don't know. It's something like, 
you know, Nadal wants uh, Federer money. It's like, okay, that sounds <laughs> totally reasonable. Uh, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like Djokovic wants Federer money. Okay, sure, let's do it. Uh, well, why would you say something like that? And in fact, that is even not the best comparison because uh, Wilder has two fights on his record on pay-per-view. John's been on pay-per-view for a decade. I mean, I don't even, I don't even mm. understand an argument at all. And the biggest selling pay-per-view that Wilder had was eight, like seventy-five or so, which only matches the rematch with DC. It's like, what about all the other pay-per-views that he had? Like, it, it, it's just—it's it, the worst argument you could possibly make in defense of like cutting somebody's pay. Okay, but they just didn't want to pay him that, right? They wanted to keep it what it is. They wanted to say you could make more if you took a high, a more high-profile fight. And the pay-per-view sales were more. Uh, okay. But why did, ultimately, Jorge Masvidal get a bump? I think it's probably two reasons. One was just the emergency situation that was involved, which is something that is not going to be the, uh, a benefit that Jones has, as we understand the circumstances today. On the other hand, I, I really believe this. Those people at Fight Island, I, they paid for all the logistics. They paid for all the COVID testing and everything else in between, transportation, and a site fee on top of it, you know, and I can only imagine what that site fee must have been. I suspect it is substantial because they want them to bring big fights there. You guys have probably seen the reports that they might delay by one week the Adesanya and Costa fight to the 26th, mm -hmm. which would mean on September, which would mean it would be put back in Fight Island, which means it would be in the big cage. A lot to unpack there, but the point being is they're putting another title fight back there. Now, I don't know if they're going to put all of them there. Obviously, this weekend is not going to be there. I'm just saying. It's a thing they're thinking about. So if those people put a bunch of money out and they want to see Jones, and Jones is as irrelevant a choice for, let's say, Francis or Stipe as anybody else, and that could help get him out. I mean, they didn't strip the guy, right? Which, granted, is for light heavyweight, but the symbolism of stripping him would be like, we're moving on from you, period. Mm. Not merely at light heavyweight. They, like, they kind of just let him have it. So to me, that means they still are thinking about him. They have to offer him fights, I suppose. Um I think that there might be a way not to get what he wants, but more than what he was going to get before. Mm. Very interesting there. It's a good point, though. They're not exactly pushing a Dominic Reyes or a Jan fight for Jones right now. Uh, Dana White's not on, on the blower after fights, you know, criticizing Jones for not taking those fights. So it's interesting to see what they want to see with him next. But speaking of cage sizes, Luke, this week, just going back to the fight this weekend, uh, DC and Stipe will be fighting in the smaller cage. Now, Stipe has said that he trains in a cage around that size and he's used to it. So even though it might be a bit of a disadvantage, that's just the way things go. But how much ultimately do you think it might impact on what we see this weekend at UFC 252? I think it has a huge role to play. And and, and, I, and I put this out on YouTube and I, I'm a hypocrite for it times a billion, <laughs> which is like when they first went to the Apex, uh, I really was a, a big fan of it because uh, of the smaller cage. And then they put, you know, uh, good fights at UFC 250 on there and I never complained. They put DC versus Steep in there, and I was like, great. And then they're like, oh, we're gonna do Adesanya Costa. And then I was like, ah, you know, I don't know that I, I don't know that I like that as much uh, because that that would for that fight, that one has a enormous impact. Mm. This one too, don't mis don't misunderstand me, but like that is a transformative X factor for the fight between Adesanya and Costa. Like if you liked Costa's chances before, you should like him a little bit more after that. Not saying he wins outright, but. I would like his chances infinitely more in that smaller cage than in the bigger one. Now, as it was, relates to this fight this weekend, 
I think it has a big role to play. The question is just how he uses it. So if you actually go back and you watch the first, sorry, the second fight, the one that was A, obviously more recent, but B, longer, what you get out of that is, yes, at times it is true early that Cormier was walking him down and the ability to do that at shorter distance you know, it, it, all the way around is going to be majorly impactful for him if the fight plays out that way. But things happened in the fourth round that were not like that. In the fourth round, first of all, Stipe began to march him down at times. Or there were times where DC would still march him down, but uh, Miocic would use that to his advantage to then go to the body. He would, he would absorb that pressure much more easily and use that to dig to the body, dig to the body, dig to the body. He would faint as uh, DC was coming in. DC puts the hands up, and then when the hands come up, bam, you guys saw it, went underneath over and over and over again, changed angles on him, and then went, out to one up two, uh, went to a one-two upstairs. And that was all she wrote. So it's like, you know, I think in general, the, the smaller cage is probably going to benefit DC because I think DC is also going to go for his wrestling on this one. And a lot of that might cancel out, but it certainly changes the dynamic of the second fight. Um, and, you know, in general, he likes to walk guys down. But I think Stipe has been with this guy for basically five rounds, right? Not in totality or not in, uh, in one fight, but, you know, put the two together. I mean, that's 25 minutes or so he has spent there. He has got a good idea at this point of what will work. And what won't? Uh, it's not the same, given that this one will be in the smaller cage relative to the first two. All I'm pointing out is, while I do think that the smaller cage confers some advantages upon DC and his style, I also think there are ways in which it could undercut the the normal pathways by which DC delivers punishment. And no one has done that better than Stipe Miocic relative to those considerations. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned the hand fighting, and and that's the thing in the in the second fight, uh, D, DC has this style where he likes to hand fight. He puts his hands out, he tries to take away your jab, which Mirchich has a very good jab, but unfortunately it leaves him open to body shots, which is what Mirchich figured out, and that changed the entire tide of the fight and got Mirchich the win. So if you're Mirchich. Do you go in there and just think, well, I need to hammer away at his body. Be patient, but hammer away at his body, especially in some of those clinch positions where Stipe wasn't really all that active in the second fight. He was more than happy to just release the clinch. Now he can go to the body. And if you're DC, when you've got this this style that you know revolves around putting your hands out, how do you fix something like that and and get rid of this you know gaping hole that you have, this this uh, disability, so to speak, which is to to you know leave your torso uh, open and vulnerable. So this is why I think the wrestling is going to be a big part. People forget in that first round. Do you guys remember he picked Miocic up yeah. and slammed him and like in the center of the octagon? Do you guys remember that? Mm-hmm. And held him on his shoulder for like a good 10 seconds. You know, was looking around for the best place to dump this dude <laughs> on the mat. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. I was like, God damn, you know. So I, I think it's going to be much more of a role in for that reason. So like when did he land? When did DC land? After the body shots, body shots started landing because folks forget this. He also landed a bunch of them. I think in the second. I got my notes here. Yeah, in the second round, mm-hmm. he put a bunch of them in the second round. Now, obviously, the fourth was the one where all of the real damage was done. But he had tasted a little bit earlier. So, what was the thing that DC would do when the body shots started coming and he would have some success with, rather than as you noted, sticking his hands out, grabbing? Because what he likes to do is he only likes to walk into someone grab their hands, and then punch on top or punch underneath himself, right? That's sort of like the way he likes to manage it. What uh, Cormier ended up adjusting to was just waiting for the feint or um, something from Miocic, and then he would just fire a one-two, boop-boop, 
and it would land every time because uh, Miocic was waiting to go to that body. He was waiting for the hands to come out. Now, obviously, Miocic got the better end of it uh, ultimately, but there were moments there where if, if Cormier kept the exchange close, uh, minimal, not like one strike, but you know, one, two, three quickly, you know, one behind the other, and then didn't uh, spend an extended period of time, just even a little tiny window going like this, he had a lot of success. So that's something he could bring back as well. The other thing, and I really wonder about this, for Miocic, if you're him, where could you have some success? Because we know that DC could get to the wrestling. We know in the clinch he's going to be pretty good, right? Once he gets an underhook on you, all those guys at AKA, they get one underhook on you and then just go to work with the other hand. That's actually how he won the first fight. Um, what could Miocic do? You know, was one thing I was really thinking about, which is leg kicks. I really thought that leg kicks would be a much bigger part, frankly, of either guy's game, for the reasons you noted. DC... Uh, wanted to take away the jab of Miocic. Now, he was able to take that away from other means. But even for Miocic, you got to slow down Cormier. And you can't go too high because then he can catch it, right? That's something you don't want to be able to do. But like a calf kick where you could calf kick and then exit or calf kick and put something behind it, and you could be far enough away. Joseph Valtellini, shouts to Bazooka Joe, he's got a whole hmm. video out about why the calf kick has become more popular in MMA. And one of the main things he shows is that the distance you have to be relative to your opponent to throw one of them is actually a little bit further away with the calf kick. So you're in a much, not like a crazy safer, but it's a safer range than if you're doing the old school tie, Dutch, you know, center of the thigh kind of leg kick. You know, why can't Miocic get back to that? It's 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 a economy of motion. It's safer distance. He can get on his horse again. It just seems to me like that is something one way or the other that should be a factor, especially for the reigning champion. Mm. It's going to be very interesting to see what kind of fighters we see this weekend as well. Obviously, we're in a pandemic and that kind of limits some of the training options. I'm curious, how much do you think they might affect the fighters as we go in there? And if you're Stipe, a guy that's always in great shape, are you looking at potentially trying to push this thing out to round four and five and really capitalize on a potential Daniel Cormier that's maybe not at 100% like before and also dealing with a lot of injuries nowadays going into fights? Yeah, I don't know about the round length or, you know, the length of the um, the, the bout duration. I have not – I don't know exactly how that would play out because Cormier got tired last time, which is why we mentioned in the fourth round, DC was being walked down by Stipe at times, which was like the, the opposite of how the bout really started and continued for the vast majority of it, quite honestly. Uh, on the other hand, if you go back and you look at him, he just had a little extra jiggle on him too, you know, mm. <laughs> and I'm not that shaming DC. <laughs> what I mean to say is – you know, there's going to be an optimum weight for DC, body type and all, to fight at 205 pounds, right? Whatever that ends up, that resting point ends up being, 215, 220, whatever it is. There's also going to be an optimum weight for him at heavyweight where he's not going to be killing himself. But there could also be a point where, yeah, you might beat good fighters with a little extra heft, but that's not optimum for you, especially against Stipe Miocic, who has a win over you and knows you really well. And Cormier is 41 years of age. So what I mean to say is he will probably still come in. I forget what he came in. I think 240-something mm -hmm. for the last fight. He will probably be a little close to that. I'm not talking a huge difference. But a five, maybe seven to eight, nine, ten-pound difference at the most, I probably suspect, to see. Because while the smaller cage means you don't have to work as much, you can't repeat any of the same mistakes. You have to kind of treat it, at least mentally, not tactically and strategically, but at least mentally, you have to treat that as... We can't get the lackadaisical attitude, you know, relatively speaking, obviously, that he had in the second fight. I mean, I was guilty of it, too. I, I interviewed Cormier before that fight, and, you know, I remember Stipe was calling for a rematch, and I'm like, 
how do you call for a rematch after you get smoked inside of a round? You know, it's mm-hmm. just I didn't even understand it. And I think DC and I felt pretty similarly at the time. And now I'm like, okay, that's how. <laughs> that's how you get a, you know, I'm like, okay, obviously this is not what we thought it was. I just mean to say, to be, you got to cross every T, you got to dot every I. So rather than bout duration, which I think was affected by the weight, at least in terms of how they were able to perform in the fourth round, to me, I'm going to look to see what the actual weight is of both competitors. Um, how how lean do they come in, and what benefits do those confer? Mm. I'm very, yeah, I'm very curious about like DC and can he even wrestle for five rounds? Um, obviously, he's got that Olympic level wrestling, but at his age, like he, he's another year older, he's got the back issues. Um, I'm very curious about that, and I, I think the Wayne will sort of tell us a little bit. Um, but I want to move on and, and talk about Sean O'Malley versus Cheeto Vera before we let you go, Luke. Obviously, as you mentioned, this is the one of more the more exciting fights uh, on the card. You know, seeing a guy climb the ranks is always so exciting. What are you hoping to find out about Sean O'Malley by the end of this fight uh, with Cheeto Vera? And make no mistake about it, people underestimating Cheeto, he, he is a dangerous threat, uh, even to Sean O'Malley. Oh, Cheeto Vera is the real deal Holyfield. I mean, <laughs> I, I know I know people think like, Cheeto Vera, who's that? Do not be that guy. I am warning you not to be that guy. That doesn't mean that Sean O'Malley can't win spectacularly, but if he does, you know, that is orders of magnitude more significant than were he to beat Eddie Wineland in the way that he did. I mean, it's not even remotely the same. Uh, Cheeto Vera is is an excellent fighter he is a guy out of i mean people know who he is he's been in the ufc for a while but i just mean it's worth recounting his steps here a little bit came out of the ultimate fighter from ecuador uh, and like a, a tiny place out of ecuador too he was not from like quito or something and he uh was okay but not great had some athletic ability but was really young moves to the states and hooks up with colin oyama and this point is not made well enough and i tried to get an interview once out of colin for this and we just kept missing each other. Hmm. Colin Oyama is gifted as a, a, a teacher of fighters in many different ways. But one of the ways in which I think he excels more than just about anybody is taking young fighters and developing them. In other words, um, some people could take somebody who is more or less developed, you know, uh, change a mindset, clean up a few things, really, you know, fine tune the others. That's one kind of skill set. Another one is to take somebody who's very raw and mature them. We, we just sort of assume that every coach can do all these things. And yes, the best ones are pretty good at all of it, but even they have their relative strengths. Colin Oyama is extraordinarily gifted at taking somebody who's a diamond in the rough and turning them into a diamond. And that is what he has in, in, with Chito Vera. I have enormous respect for uh, Marlon Vera and his career and how far he's come. I did not think he lost that bout against Song Yadong or uh, whatever the scores were. I think that was in D.C. for... Uh, maybe maybe it wasn't. It was recent, but it was not. It was, I think it was in Jacksonville, and it was terrible, terrible scores. I didn't agree with it at all. He can do it all. He has excellent jujitsu. He's got a great guard. He has an iron chin, which I think is going to be very interesting against Sean O'Malley. He's rangy. He's um, uh, he's heavy-handed, uh, unafraid of contact. I mean, he can do it all. Now, is he as slick on the feet? As O'Malley, I don't think so. Is he as clever and innovative? I, I don't necessarily think so. So to me, it's like, dude, let me tell you something. If Sean O'Malley can pass this test, wow, uh, look out. He can do spectacular things. On the other hand, I talked to Chito Vera about this fight too, and he was like, look, man, I'm not one of these guys who is going to be like, oh, he's young and, you know, what is he, unranked or just at the top 15 or so, you know, barely at the top 15. 
uh, was off for a couple years, and you know he's just a he's a he's a figment of the fans' imagination in terms of how good he is. I'm not going to make that mistake. I know he's good. I know he's talented. Didn't have kind words to say about him on a personal level, <laughs> but made sure to like split that from his assessment of him as a challenge. Man, I am so excited to see exactly how good Sean O'Malley is because I'll tell you this much: as good as I think Marlon Vera is. I think all the enthusiasm behind Sean is 1,000% well-placed. And and your mileage on this may vary, but I am just one of these guys where when someone is coming up and they have to fight that guy and then that guy and then that guy, you know, when they're coming up the Mortal Kombat <laughs> power, you know, so to speak, and then they finally get to Goro, you're like, no, they can't beat Goro. There's no way they're going to beat Goro. And then, and then they smoke Goro. You're like, oh, my God, how good is this? That, to me, is the most exciting time in a fighter's career. So I don't mean I don't know if Sean O'Malley is going to pass that test on Saturday. What I am going to say is if he does, it will be so exciting. Or conversely, Marlon Vera is a young guy, too. I think he's in his late 20s. He's a commentator for UFC on the Spanish side. It might be his coming-of-age moment as well. Either way, Super, super exciting contest. Mm, fantastic coming out party for both fighters, Luke. We appreciate you coming on the program. Of course, follow the matter L. Thomas News. And speaking of Mortal Kombat, his show, The Morning Combat, airs every Monday mm. at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Some fantastic artwork on a weekly, Luke. I have to admit, it's really, really awesome. Of course, that's Tuesdays here in Australia. There's a great story where Luke admits to, uh, in his younger days, shoplift Subway sandwiches, I believe, from supermarkets. Something... That I would never think uh, you'd have in common with us, Luke. No, I'm just kidding. And also, of course, the Luke Thomas live chat, the Luke Thomas show on SiriusXM, which is also available worldwide on Apple Podcasts and Pandora. That's the selected highlights, not the full show. I really love that as well. To me, that's kind of like the PTI of MMA. You can jump on and see what all the latest topics are. Do it quickly, nice and easy on your drives through your podcasting apps. It's absolutely fantastic. Make sure to check it out, Luke. We can't wait to see what happens this weekend. Thanks so much for getting us excited for the fights. Enjoy the fights, boys.